Want to better your relationships? Get confident asking for what you really want? And have more satisfying sex? Welcome to Intimate Interactions, a collection of juicy negotiations, informative explanations, sultry debriefings, and much more. Get early access and other goodies at patreon.com slash victorsalmon. Welcome to our first podcast, an easy-to-access, relaxed conversation where my guest helps me make advanced content seem simple and straightforward. One piece of jargon I forgot to explain in the session ahead is the word compersion. Compersion is the joy that we experience when seeing joy in others. Maybe you see a couple smiling at each other as they leave the movie theater, or you see a couple kissing in the rain, and you smile. Maybe your friends get a promotion at work. Do you feel angry at them for doing better than you? Envious of their success? Excluded from their celebration? Or do you feel proud of them, filled with joy that their hard struggle has finally paid off? This is the feeling of compersion, joy when seeing joy. To understand how to have better relationships and sex, it's helpful to break from scripts that society writes for us about what we're supposed to have, do, or not do, like not talk about intimacy, sex, and relationships. We'll start by discussing mainstream culture as normative culture, that is, culture that interprets the world for us, pushing us towards one set of ideas and away from all others, instead of letting us interpret the world for ourselves. Good or bad, normal or abnormal, correct or incorrect, the world is more than these binaries. You can think of this as culture that describes some people as good people for doing normal actions, and other people as bad people for doing abnormal actions. Later, we'll consider alternative ways to act that enrich our lives and allow us to access better sex, intimacy, and ultimately, relationships. Disclaimer. I apologize in advance if something I say discriminates against some folks. I'm open to being called in. Chances are six months from now, I'll look back aghast and see something horrifically problematic I'm not proud of. I'm certainly not perfect, but I'm trying to be mindful of the voices I choose to lift up and the perspectives that I encourage. Along that line, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on unceded traditional Coast Salish territory, specifically that of the Musqueam Nation. So this is my friend X. Welcome, X. Hello. He is a director, a scriptwriter, and monogamous, and he's going to help be the lens through which I try and understand normative culture. Awesome. Great. So let's dive right in. So I was thinking about normative culture as... Instead of thinking about the relationships we have with people individually, normative culture is sort of like, um, it's a facet of the relationship you have with society. So in the same way you might have a relationship with a partner and your partner might voice, it really irritates me when you brush your teeth like that. Like, could you just close your lips a little, you know, like something like that. Like they pick a specific habit and they're like, I really hate that about you. And you're kind of like, man, that really sucks. It only affects you if you're the kind of person who brushes their teeth with their lips open, which, I mean, hey, free teeth brushing for everyone, right? You should be able to brush your teeth how you want. Yeah, brush away. Brush, brush away, brush away, friend, brush away. <laughs> I love it, love it. Um, so the idea with normative culture is it's a normative aspect of our relationship with society. So we have a relationship with society in the way all of our peers and everyone sort of interacts with us. And, and that's sort of what I wanted to dig at today was that relationship and aspects of it that for me, I look at and I go like, why would anyone like draw society up like that? Like it seems to me like it's super um, hostile or unwelcoming for someone like myself. But then we have a conversation and you remind me that it's actually really like fulfilling and wholesome and it serves a lot of people in society. You can do some good things. I mean, everything has, if it's 
if it's still around, it doesn't necessarily mean it's it's good, but sure, there's probably reasons to ask. Yeah, that's a really like astute observation, <laughs> um, and this is partly why I had you on um, because I know you are a director and you literally look at writing scripts, you literally look at tropes, you look at the messages society gives us in media frequently, um, like all of the things this is about. You're actually like incredibly qualified to talk about. So. Um, Especially as a scriptwriter, I wanted to dig into the scripts that society writes for us, that this is sort of a way that you're prescribed to behave. And I wanted to look specifically at dating first, so let's, let's dive into that. So um, what actions around dating has our society here in Western Canada declared to be good actions or bad actions? You know, it's kind of fascinating. Um, so good actions in dating are being honest, yep. um, ethical, taking mm-hmm. it slow. Okay. Um, intentions are kind of a big thing. I mean, if I meet somebody, people want to know where, and for some reason that's a big issue. Did I meet her on uh, online? Did right. I meet her at a club? Did I meet her on the street and have a cute meet cute? That's the best story. That's where you want to do it. Ah, interesting. Nobody wants to sit there and go, I was sweating my you know, <laughs> ass off at the gym and this sure. guy came up to me and said, I like your glute exercise. That doesn't, you know what I mean? It's not, right. a, good, not a good story. So that becomes sure. this factor in. Even if that person had seen her model that behavior with other individuals and decided, well, I'm hoping this won't ruin her day, and just went up and tried something, and it actually ended up being a super positive interaction. And, you know, it's a weird example, because I've never talked to anybody at the gym. Neither have I. (laughs) (laughs) It just seems like the last thing I want to do. It seems like the worst possible place to try and talk to somebody, because they aren't feeling likely super sexy. I'm certainly not. I'm certainly not, I'm the most insecure person at the gym ever, so the the idea of going up to somebody and being like... How do you feel about having coffee? <laughs> uh, I just watched you wail on your pecs, and I'm interested in having coffee. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, I especially liked the way that you huffed and puffed. <laughs> you must need, you're going to need some energy after that kind of workout. How would you I treat you to miles. a muffin? <laughs> What's a good, like, kale place we can go? Like, maybe they have coffee for me. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's such a neat... It's such a neat Observation that even when we come up with these examples, we're able to sort of evaluate them from a social context. It's something that humans do incredibly well, is, is sort of, at least most of us do reasonably well. I certainly have not been very great at it. I'm, I'm aware of this and catching myself as I say it. I'm like, actually, I don't have great social awareness. Um, but we do that really well. We sort of evaluate how would this be perceived by others? Um, and that goes back to what you were talking to in terms of dating. Where did you meet this person? Well, what are they going to think if I say I met her on OkCupid and we're actually both really okay with that? Yeah, you know, I guess it just depends. One of the coolest things I found that if I meet somebody, you know, online or something like that, they're, they're not going to say, oh, I met online. They're going to say, what did we do on the first date? Uh, you know what I mean? Yes. Did we go somewhere fun? Did we yeah. have a nice conversation? Like they're gonna find the good and just get rid of the rest anyway because right. it makes a nice fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And well, that's an interesting aspect of storytelling that you just brought in. That when you're talking about your own life, it like the veracity. I think there's a movie Big Fish that makes this point that the veracity of the um, and I'm only mentioning this because I know you've probably seen this whole breadth of movies in your training but the veracity is less important than the the content of the story well exactly um yeah exactly <laughs> you like exactly what you said yep. awesome <laughs> Great. 
cool. So, so in terms of good or bad actions for society, I feel like I certainly get told that dating multiple people is a bad action. Like, there's very much this calm of like, good people do this and bad people do these things. Don't do those things. Don't look at those people. They are warning posts of what not to do. They are not. I tend, I tend to feel that way when I talk about being non-monogamous. And I guess where a lot of it comes from to me is if you take some person who hasn't done research and how to mm-hmm. ethically approach non-monogamy, right. then what they're going to do to be non-monogamous is probably going to be very underhanded. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, they might sleep around or start a second family that nobody knows about. Right. There's so a lot of when you say ways. sleep around, you're specifically talking about like dishonestly cheating on someone. Yeah, like somebody's committed to them and they're right. not... Mm-hmm. holding that end of the bargain up. Right, so they've committed to someone else in turn, and then they're now being dishonest. They're breaking that that commitment. They're non-monogamous in the worst way possible. Right. In, in the sense that they just don't care. Right. And that, mas- and that doesn't necessarily mean that his partners that he is with um, also know about it. You know what I mean? Like, sure. it could be... Yeah, because there is definitely that trope of this person knows that they've been cheated on for the last 15 years and they're still with that person for reasons, whether it's, you know, emotional insecurities or whatever psychological framework might underlie why you would stay with a person who is cheating on you, because there definitely are reasons. Children, jobs, other forms of leverage. Could be love. You never know. Awesome. Yes. I love that you mentioned it. Yeah. It could. Maybe it's one of those things where it's like, is this such a big deal? And do Mm -hmm. I really care to have the conversation Am I, Mm -hmm. what am I losing versus what am I getting? You know, Mm -hmm. some people I think really come to that conclusion. Totally. In a a lot of ways. I don't know. And I think some people are naturally more compersive than others. I'm, it's sort of like, I often like in compersion in relationships, not that we can in any way unearth that topic in the same breath as dating and scripting. um, But compersion, I find, is really established in the same sort of breath as sibling rivalry. If you have kids, and they learn to coexist and share their parents, and they have really good modeling of sharing love early on in life, I find very loosely and anecdotally that's reflected in people's adult relationships. Whereas if people struggled really hard with sibling rivalry and they didn't really have good patterns of loving and sharing modeled from their parents with their siblings early on, that tends to be represented, I find, in relationships as well. Well, and and where else when you're growing up do you see it? Right. Um, Because TV and things like that, where you can get a lot of a lot of information from, Mm -hmm. um, runs on conflict. You don't watch TV shows to be happily entertained by the nice people doing nice things and never having any trouble. Right. And that creates a bit of a problem because you don't see functioning relationships right. you see problem relationships trying to function true even relation even some of the best most lauded movies like um pixar's inside out was wow there's not really a physical antagonist it's literally just this person struggling through adolescence with coming to a sense of emotional intelligence and maturity and learning to cope with it being okay to have these negative feelings making the an- the antagonist of a storyline like a person's emotional struggle instead of having like a paper cutout villain that that's huge well you know and it's it's one of those things like so if you're young and you're watching that movie mm-hmm. and then later on in life you start to feel a bit depressed you might remember that movie and what the yeah. characters did and you might go okay i have mm-hmm. a, i have an idea of what to do i have a map but you don't really get a lot of shows where you just 
build a healthy relationship and keep it, right? You learn a lot about how to <laughs> fix bad problems that you've made, but you don't sure. learn a lot of... Uh, yeah, and I mean fix in quotations because a lot of oh, it has man. to be wrapped up in 30 or 60 minutes. And it's just back to the status quo. There's no right. aftermath. You know? there's, there's no time to try and lay out a new narrative when you have 60 minutes. Exactly. It's like, I mean, maybe there isn't 60 minutes, but I think most shows trying to fit into a 30-minute time slot or even 45 minutes with commercials, like the more you cut that back, the harder and harder it gets to make content that's really meaningful as opposed to here's the movie of the week. Like, we're literally just producing something because we need work, and this will sell enough, and the industry needs to keep on keeping on. Oh, yeah, and it's... Exactly. It's hard to... Especially in the movie industry, because movies are all about change. Yeah. Something has to change in the movie. So, yeah, a person's view or whatever might change on relationships, but that means mm-hmm. it had to be something that needed to be changed right. to start. So you're right. not getting these... If you don't kind of have these role models as a kid, where do you find them? Right. You don't see people in society just on the street practicing healthy relationship techniques because it's in public. Right. And and that's where um, a lot of these new non-monogamous cultural groups are starting their own um, societies, websites, blogs, etc. There's even a poly role models website that's literally called that. I think Kevin Patterson started it, the same person who wrote Love's Not Colorblind, oh, yeah. about the intersection of race relations and non-monogamy, which was a great read, and I highly encourage that. I got to see his talk as well. Oh, right on. Yeah, and his publicist is um, Eve Rickert, who... Publicist? Publisher. Um, who did More Than Two with Franklin Vero, which is another one of my favorite non-monogamy books. Okay. Also, I guess I should... Full disclosure, I did back um, Thorn Tree Press when they first started, so I'm like, man, I really like this whole vein of publishing. I just really believe strongly in producing this media, um, and I think that's why I'm so quick to tout it and flaunt it and promote it, because I agree with you. Where where else do you get these these role models from? Well, and that's one of the reasons your podcast is actually really important. Ah, thank you. Um, and I mean that wholeheartedly, because you don't find it anywhere. Yeah, it's it's not common material to cover, for sure. Great. Um, and, and there are podcasts out there. There's, um, there's a multi-amory podcast. There's, um, there are a few others. I'm, I'm really hesitant to promote any of them because I think all of them would find something they disagree with in all of the others in the same way that I would find things I disagreed with in all of them. And if I were to mention them, I would feel wrong not mentioning what I disagreed with, what was tone deaf about this one or what was really white about another one. If they just say things where you're just like, oh my God, it's like they literally can't hear themselves talking, but it's because they can't see through my lens. Like they can't have the experience of a person of color because they're just not. And that's okay. There's no shame in that. It's just, you have to know that when you're a person of color going to listen to podcasts. Otherwise you're going to listen to it for five minutes and go, what the fuck did they just say? Yeah. Oh my God. Well, and that's one of the, that, I mean, that's a neat topic all on its own is just, oh, yeah. let's look at what the other, t- other, sure. uh, other, other lenses podcasts are. are saying and what sure. the other lenses oh, are that we're yes. watching them through and why. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. here's some neat opinion. That's a cool review section to... To review other podcasts. See, I think I couldn't be also a podcast because otherwise <laughs> it's just flaming your competition and being like, well, these are things they do really well, but also fire and brimstone, fire and brimstone. But the beauty of it is it's not so much these are what they're doing wrong. It's here's why I don't like these things. Sure. What are some ways to improve on this? You're sure. not hurting the competition That's by true. You could actually it. provide useful feedback. Um, they might like the feedback. If it, yes, I love any good feedback that comes with logic behind it. Cool. Um, any good feedback. Because then you're like, oh, 
not all people have training as a creative though. Like I feel True. like you've had a lot of years of like like ruthless <laughs> feedback and criticism to get you to the best you that you can be creatively. And a lot of people like myself that just like wing it, that just buy a couple of fifty dollar mics as I have <laughs> and just like just wing it. They don't necessarily have that that training. But I could reach out to them and ask if they're interested in me doing a review. They might you never know, you know what I mean? Um they might enjoy it. They might want to hear what your podcast is and ask if they can do the same. You never know. Oh, that'd right? be really fascinating to be like, you really don't represent white boys on the show. No, I'm just kidding. I, I do. I do. Um, <laughs> wah, wah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also, um, and also they may have really good, valuable feedback. I'm not trying to, to be in this, this holier than thou position. I mean, there are other people of color that do podcasts that are, that are pretty good that I've also heard. But again, there are things about them that I would criticize. So I would rather not, reference any specific ones but you can google them you can look them up they they do exist so i just wanted to mention that as we were talking about how little of this culture exists there actually is more than you'd think perfect and that's yeah. good to know you know like it's it's not typically mainstream though you won't get like you don't get the same a level as you get say in dan savage but there are definitely things about dan savage's podcast that i i'm not a super big fan of especially when he talks about polyamory sometimes i'm like I don't feel like he's the best person to talk about polyamory. Oh, and, and I'm not familiar with it. There's also stuff with, um, well, he also has this concept of good giving game. Here here we are doing the thing I specifically said we probably shouldn't do. But I feel like Dan <laughs> Savage is like a fair target because he's such a public figure and so successful that nothing I could say would, would in any way impede his progress. And it's, it's all public, right? It's right. not like yeah. people are going to watch it, people are going to have opinions, and there's nothing wrong with that. Totally. You know? But yeah, we'll probably touch more on good giving and game when we talk about consent and how important it is to get consent and all the different ways to get consent and the notion of consent as best practices instead of prior consent. We'll talk about ongoing consent, all that stuff. We're going to cover all that stuff in a deep dive when we have the time. Perfect. But getting back to <laughs> behavior society declares is good and bad, which I'm now realizing was a novice writing mistake because it was such a broad topic that we could talk about that one question for hours. You know... That's the best way to do it. We'll just give them days of listening. It is. It is. It is going to be true, unadulterated um, X and Victor content. <laughs> Had to censor myself. For... Right. Drive. Uh, drive for twelve hours. Listen to us. <laughs> you yammer on forever. It'd be great. By the time you get to the other side, I'm not sure what mental state you might be in. <laughs> then you have to drive back. So we'll have another one for you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we'll we'll do our best to throw in like a, a solid 17 minute experimental song section oh, with good. a one note song. <laughs> just just as an experiment on the sanity of our listeners. All right. One note. <laughs> one. Just one note. And, and occasionally <laughs> you get to bend it. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. So. Talking more about society and getting back on topic, um, do you feel like society tries to police your behavior in any way towards a predictable norm? Uh, and it's okay if the answer is no, because I did already mention that you're monogamous. Um, yes and no. I mean, mm -hmm. if I'm dating and I don't really have a, a girlfriend or a partner, uh, um, yes. and I'm kind of just looking for one, people might see it as something wrong if I see one person a few times and then I, you know, maybe I introduce myself to someone else and go on another first date. Like, until we've decided to enter a, a relationship, some people could see that as really um, almost like a, a dishonesty or like, what are you doing? Settle down. What's, why are you still looking around? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I can see some of that, you know, that, that argument is maybe a bad choice or maybe not. But 
you know, you got to follow your heart. You got to understand mm-hmm. people where they're at before you sure jump into something that's I, I agree. harder to break. You know what I mean? Like, Go on about harder to break. I... Because I know what you mean, but I, I want you to elaborate on that a little. And I, I, I like to write on this more often than I ever thought I would. <laughs> um, but I find that once you're in a relationship, um, that's an important decision sometimes, all the time. And they're not easy to just break off. It's not sure. like you can sit there and go, eh, change my mind, have a good day, and just walk away. Sure, because they're human beings and you have emotional attachment. You're invested in certain relationships. Right, and if... I started dating somebody that I really like, and they suddenly did that to me. I'd be like, no, 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 right. no, 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 no. I just invested in this. Like, well, I mean, I'd be really careful about out. that. I would definitely let people walk away if that was their choice. But I would certainly, have, I would certainly try to voice my reasons why that might be a bad idea. Sure. And why we might work. You know what I mean? If I sure. can't say at least my thoughts on the matter, I mean, all I can do is tell them what I think, and if they still walk away, they still walk away. Yeah, for sure. Can't You know, you can't do so much past that point, but mm-hmm. at least that way it gives you the chance to go, well, let me give you a counter-argument. Like, I don't sure. know where you're coming from. So what I'm, what I'm hearing is that there is a desire or almost an entitlement to negotiate to continue a relationship if you feel like you've invested a lot and you don't understand why it's ending. And that's the big thing, right? If you don't understand why it's ending or you don't mm-hmm. agree with why it's ending, this happened to, to me and it was a good decision on my partner's mm-hmm. um, on my partner's side where I wasn't happy with the relationship and they did not want me to end it and they argued with me, and uh, which I didn't see coming, but it was, uh, it was a really neat really neat way to open a discussion into what other options there are Mm -hmm. and why and what's going on Um, and it formed a whole new level of communication so you never really know right I mean it It sounds like a positive end I'm always cautious (laughs) about the means to get there well and entirely and it didn't if if things were healthy we wouldn't have had that conversation sure sure I, I, I mean that's an interesting that's an interesting point when you say if things are healthy you're talking about healthy relationships or are you talking about healthy people healthy relationship got uh, you specifically yeah. and, and that is that is usually what I find the monogamous focus is it tends to prioritize the relationship and the mutual investment of the people whereas in non-monogamy I tend to find the people are more important than the relationship which doesn't mean you don't become incredibly committed to each other and have really intense intimate relationships it just means that if a relationship isn't serving the people in the relationship or isn't serving one of the people in that relationship, that's, that's, that's a really significant thing. All of a sudden, if one person is not having a great time, that becomes the focus. It centers around, I mean, at least in my experience of non-monogamy, and I would encourage, I would encourage that philosophy of centering around people that are hurting or people that are trying to process through a thing. It's, it's less about, for me whether a relationship continues as to whether or not that relationship was a success. And I, I love what you said there because that makes so much sense. I'm somebody who thinks a lot about the relationship and less about the two people involved or more. Sure, sure. Um, which, so that's such a great thought that just my you're having, brain... You look like you're having up. a mind-blown experience it right totally now. did. Um, <laughs> and I mean, one of the things that I'm really discovering more and more and one of the mm. themes I have in my current relationship that I really love is we're not here to make each other happy. We're here to make ourselves happy um, if at all possible and we're here just to be together. 
You know, it's uh, I can't make you happy. I sure. can maybe I can know. try. I can be supportive. I can uh, yeah. offer to help you get your needs met. But ultimately, like you do, you you know, you got to do you. I, yeah. You know what I mean. And you're just if you're trying to make me happy and you mm-hmm. don't know what I need, you're just going to get frustrated because mm-hmm. maybe I just need you to be there and not try. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to <laughs> asking good questions, having good negotiations, being able to really. Um, dig in with each other into what you want out of a relationship. And that kind of comes back to scripts of what we're told to want in relationships. Um, We had a great conversation about flowers and chocolate earlier. I was talking about um, the normativity of dating culture and how um, when when I'm courting someone, the first thing that comes to mind is first date is flowers and chocolate, um, maybe dinner and a movie possibly. Um, and, And I don't tend to like that. I tend to like coffee. But I was thinking like it's these preset ideas on dating are not just to some extent um, what dating can be, but to some extent they're what we're told dating should be. Almost like the 1950s USA was like the halcyon days and we're all trying to get back to that. What I would describe as a horrific time period. Um, <laughs> You're not wrong. From, from a minority perspective, um, be that you know someone, a person with, living with disabilities or a non-white person or... Um, a woman, um, any any of those things, like, there are a lot of reasons to believe that that sort of environment would actually be quite horrific, and I think it's only idealized by white men. I mean, that's my belief. I really can't argue with you either. Um, <laughs> that seems seems legit. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I mean, like things like flowers or doing something really nice is mm-hmm. is an adventure. It gives you a chance to put yourself out there and say, no, I like you. Here's some things. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is a love language. It's valid to show love monetarily. Not that that's necessarily, in my opinion, what I strive to do or that it's a goal for me, but I recognize for some people it's a really good way of showing love. And I mean, I like, especially by meeting somebody I don't really know, I wouldn't, you know, go out of my way to spend a lot of money on them because sure. that's not something... And that's off-putting on all of our parts, I think, a little bit. Because why? You know what I mean? Like, what, what is the goal here? It seems over-eager, um, and it's also heavily invested in only one form of communicating love. Well, and especially if you don't really know them, if you're just meeting them for the first time, that might be a huge overstep. Because how do you know you guys even get along? How do you know sure. anything about each other? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you kind of talk to someone for a little bit and you know, like, oh, I'm really going to take you on this fun date, flowers can be a nice, real surprising way to go, oh, my God, like, that's really cool. That's amazing. Sure. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be flowers. It could be anything. We were also having this conversation earlier about um, traditional styles of dating and how um, in some settings where a person is comfortable with it, buying them flowers and chocolate, taking them for dinner in a movie, paying for their dinner even as the mask-presenting person, that that can almost seem original in how rarely it's done, even though it's, like, so truly unoriginal in a lot of ways, in the sense that it's traditional. My... In my current relationship, my partner was constantly blown away that I wanted to take her to really nice dinners and, mm-hmm. and... and and have fun and she was like nobody does this anymore and I'm like what do you mean nobody does this <laughs> you're like I like going this out. is what this is the actual foundation that people tell you to date sure. take her out somewhere nice dress mm-hmm. up a little bit and have some fun be a gentleman it's um, a very interesting idea um, of normative gender as well in terms of being a gentleman and then the sort of roles that that different genders get in dating and how those roles tend to be on this gender binary, which I'm very much, I very much disagree with the gender binary. Um, again, not enough time on this episode to touch on that. <laughs> well, and exactly right. I mean, it's just essentially be kind and mm-hmm. 
you're not don't go in looking for anything just be with the person and enjoy mm -hmm. them you know focused, enjoy being with them focus time and attention which is another love language exactly mm -hmm. awesome Right, so I was going to ask what defaults or preordained scripts are you told to follow in a relationship, but I feel like we just answered that one. <laughs> yeah, a gentleman's a good one. Um, you know, a lot of times meeting people, I have to be very conscious, especially of who I am and what everyone else has done when trying to approach a person. Sure. Um, and I like to meet a lot of people just to chat. I don't really sure. go out of my way to uh, to flirt. So when I meet a stranger or something like that, I really try to be conscious. Like, oh, man, don't don't be a weirdo. Um, you know what I mean? Don't be this... That's super normative language, so it like totally speaks to what we're saying. Well, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, Don't be this weirdo guy that's talking to her and she doesn't know why. You know what I mean? Like, Got what you. am I doing? Why am I right. talking to you? I'm not right. here to... Get so, in your pants. So like, for me, that definitely feels, like, creepy. It's when, like, all of your body language tends to be ambiguous. So, like, your reasoning for why you're there isn't clear. And that's scary and off-putting, especially in a world where rates of sexual assault are so high and where stalking is a behavior that's not just... I mean, it's it's slightly disapproved of by society as a whole. People will, will turn their nose at it, but they don't consider it serious, in, in my experience, in a lot of cases. Wow. Well, if you look at... What was it... I mean, I don't want to talk out of my ass here, but I think it was the Golden State Killer that was caught. Um, oh, yeah, I don't know much about this one. And the first thing that the media seemed to touch on was, oh, maybe all of this, this murder and maybe all of this crime and all of this rape was driven by a hatred of his ex-fiance. And it's like, what? Why is that even relevant? That's, they don't try and justify why a like, mass rapist has, has committed this violence. And that's the. It seemed like it was the very first thing the media did was they jumped to, oh, you know, if this, if this, if this relationship with his ex fiance were better, and it was like, this person got harassed for it, from my understanding, and like that's just, like, staggering to me. Well, and the biggest thing, that I honestly can't turn a blind eye to is the media is only there to make money. Right. They're not right. there to tell you, the right. best sides of things. They're mm -hmm. there to get you to click on the link. Totally. And if rage is the easiest way to do that. They will do that, yeah. That, so, man, the news, the media, drives me nuts. People are like, why is the news doing this? I'm like, because you paid them. Right. And I think... For and, it. Sure. And I think Facebook um, has done a study on this, and I think they found that, like, it was, like, funny links that were number one, but if you can't find a way to make it funny, it might have been rage that was number two, like I'm, the angry I'm, emoji. I'm fairly certain it is. Yeah, rage is... And they prioritize the way that emojis show up, what order they show up in. And I think it's prioritized by which ones are more likely to make you click. So if you have two laughs and two angers, the laughs are going to show up first. Oh, man. You know, and so when things like that, when the news reports on something, you know, I was talking to a friend about uh, a review on a show. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, I hear that a lot of people are really upset because of this. And I said, what people? And she says, well, I don't know. And I said... Well, I don't either. The news just said everybody. But I wasn't upset by this. Were you upset by this? She's like, no. And I'm like, have you ever been asked these questions? You know what I mean? I right. hate those things. Like, oh, all these people say that this is the best place. I'm like, where was, this, where was the vote for that? Right. Like, who sourced this? Who? Exactly. So yeah. it's so unreliable when people say everybody's doing this. Well, no, they're not. Right. Somebody's doing this. Mm -hmm. And the news caught it and said, right. this is what everyone does. Right. Kids these days. <sighs> Next up. Fans of this are outraged. I'm like, we are? <laughs> totally. Oh, 
Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> or like what teens are calling it and why it's not what you think. Right? It drives me nuts. And then that's part of the clickbait too. Nothing totally. Biggest turnoff in any sort of media relation is yeah. clickbait. Yeah. I don't want to know what I'm getting. I want to click on an article that I actually understand like what is this going to be about? Yeah, it would be much better to understand what you're getting instead of having a bait and switch where you think you're clicking on one thing and it's actually something else. So, And sometimes clickbait gets <laughs> misunderstood. I was, as an aside, as a brief aside here, I was in, a, I was in a, um, a university class. I can't remember which one. It was, I think it was an ethics class. And the, the professor had got this article about um, something about like a, a 60 or 70-year-old woman, quote unquote, giving birth. But that was the headline, like, six-year-old woman gives birth. But what had happened was she just donated an oocyte that was fertilized, and one of her daughters was um, a surrogate. And, like, that's not the same thing. But the teacher had understood it literally word for word and was talking about, like, the, the modern advancements and, like, how far should we let them go? And I'm like, that's a great philosophical question. That's a great ethics question. And this is not the news article to do that with. Right? I, exactly. Exactly that, though, you or know? Or at least not with that. At least, at the very least, just read the whole article was my only ask. I'm like, you're a professor. Read the whole article. If you don't understand it, ask someone who does, and then present accurate information to your class. Like, trusting a headline without reading it? Because, like, it was it was pretty obvious. I, like, raised my hand and pointed out. I was like, hey, just so you know, like, she didn't actually give birth. And he was, like, shocked by this. Oh. Kind of, like, revealed something. And I'm like, at least mask your shock. Like, and, you know, like, and that's just it. Headlines especially don't give the story and they don't it, it, the whole media drives me nuts yeah <laughs> and, and, I, and I suppose we could talk about this for hours as well I, I could go on <laughs> and I should I should also be careful to mention that I just said mask your shock and and that goes back to the idea of normativity and the emotions that are appropriate to demonstrate and the narratives that our emotions tell and the way that we try and save face or keep up appearances, which speaks to normativity perfectly. You know, one of the neat things I learned um, about working with a lot of people, especially if you're the head of the ship, and this really kind of goes back to it, is everyone thinks you got to be the strong person, you got to know what you're doing, this and that. Mm. And this is one of the biggest mistakes that people forget or don't understand when they get into a leadership role, which I love, is no. Show them that you're upset or you're scared or you're angry. Totally. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to sure. uh, freak out. It's the wrong word, but you don't have to show a lot of anger. If you can say, "I'm really angry. I need to take a minute to breathe," that's not a weakness. You're you demonstrating go, healthy coping. If you sit there and go, "I don't know what to do," and I'm terrified out of my mind, but I'm going to come up with something. Yeah, like, I'll, I'll figure this out. Yeah, it's it's. There's no wrong in that, and people actually respect it a lot more when they go, mm-hmm. "Oh, I get it." You're a person. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I agree 100%. It's the same thing that we're struggling with in the kink scene right now is we're trying to figure out how to portray educators as humans instead of demigods because every once in a while you'll get a cult of personality or you'll get somebody who is a dom and as a dom they have understood their role as a teacher to be a domly dom 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 and that's a problem. Interesting. Mm-hmm. We have to... We have to create an emotional doms like space. Could you imagine? (laughs) That would be the most interesting space that I would never want to be in. A whole bunch of people with their whips and paddles and floggers just crying and talking about their feet, hugging each other. Don't see me as a person. (laughs) I just feel so scared sometimes. Totally. You know how healthy that would be, though. It would be, and that's so good, right? And 
you know, when I first got introduced to kink, especially one of yeah. the people that I worked with regularly was this very, very large man. He was tall, mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. built, and he was just his voice was super deep. Like it was, he was the, the Mister Big and Tall that that store was made for. Oh, exactly. And he said, <clears throat> when I discovered that there was a way that I could communicate and consensually hit somebody mm-hmm. that wanted to be hit, my whole life changed. And I was like, this is such a cool thought. Yeah. Um, that I wouldn't, you know what I mean? So these, And that speaks to normativity too, because um, you're still talking about, like, I didn't know this was even an option. Like, I was told that this was a thing bad men did, that men don't hit women. Um, and obviously, non-consensually, they don't. That's a really terrible thing. Actually, non-consensually, they do really frequently, and it's a really bad thing. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's an epidemic. The violence against women that happens in North... Like, just the stats I was looking at in North America just made me want to throw up. Like, they're, they're staggering, and it's, it's, it's a hard to even put perspective on it. I can, I can Google some figures if we all want to be really disgusted, but suffice it to say, it's a, it's a significant problem. And often when you bring up these conversations, the first thing you hear is that competitive gender binary male rights activist bullshit. It's like, absolutely, there is violence against men. And absolutely, it's yeah. a serious issue. And no one's contending that. Like, obviously, it is a really important issue that we need to tackle. And it is a separate conversation and not necessarily relevant when you're talking about one unique case um, and I say unique to mean one case out of the spectrum of gender and intimate partner violence, not a unique case in that it's not common. Because obviously cis male violence against cis females, like that spectrum of within the framework of normative society, there's actually a lot of dysfunction and unhealth and really violent, awful behavior. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, but I just... Well, it makes me think of... A way that people argue when they're frustrated and when they don't understand something mm-hmm. is to get the shift as, as far away as possible. Right. So when people hear, you know, these guys are beating on these women or right. whatever, and they go, well, what about all this other stuff? That's a strict lack of something going on there where, you know what I mean? Yeah, like it's, they're not processing it. it. It could be a guilt thing because they're sure. lumped into this or sure. because they don't know that maybe they feel attacked. A lot of people aren't equipped for this Conversation. I'm not equipped for this conversation. Sure. I don't have any information on any stance or any way to right. stop this problem right. from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's just kind of like, oh, well, shit. I, should, I should say that you, you know, know of, because obviously we I can all of, try yeah. and model good consent and and speak up in conversations where people say things that are potentially... like There are there are ways that we can all contribute a little bit, but I, I hear what you're saying. You can't just magically snap your fingers and make it go away. I'd have to do some research. Exactly. I sure. have to learn. Um, I, I want to know that research people. that lets you eventually snap your fingers and make it magically go away. Right? Just <laughs> let me help you. <laughs> yes. I, I was going to make like a Wingardia Leviosum pun, but I felt like making light of the situation was probably not... Um, like, I think... Uh, Oh man, this I'm just is, not even going to go there because it is it is a really emotionally charged topic for some people. And and the hard part about humor is using humor to make light of a situation doesn't mean the situation is in any way light. Right. It doesn't mean people don't hurt. It just but makes you feel more comfortable about it. it. Laughter is a really big stress relief. This is yeah. why people prefer to laugh over be angry on the news articles. Right. Is exactly that. So. And, and it's good to understand and really make sure people know that even yeah. if we have a good laugh at something, it's not at the expense of it. It's because it's an uncomfortable topic. Totally. And sometimes that's a nicer way to just... Who wouldn't want to be able to magically fix something? Yeah, that's absolutely. Not a, that's not a bad thing to want. Totally. So, you know what I mean? 
it's mm-hmm. I get it, you know. I do. I, I, I think it's I think it's this issue of people wanting the problem to go away so badly that they dismiss it's even there to begin with. Oh man, and that's another it's another way to turn a blind eye, right? Totally. And this is, if people don't learn about things, right? We know a lot of things that we were taught through school and being kids and this and that, and there's a lot we don't know. Right. Um, there's a lot I don't know. Um, and the only way that I pick it up is from what people tell me. And people don't talk about how I went home and got angry and beat my wife. What? Yeah. That's not right. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, so it's an unsaid conversation. So people can easily say, well, I don't know about it. So and again, we're happen. speaking in a non-consensual context. 100%. Yeah. But, and even in a consensual context, nobody people usually know how tells to handle. me, That's true. I go home and beat my wife consensually. I'd be like, what? <laughs> right. You'd be like, that isn't something that happens in the normal framework of conversation. Yeah. This is an interesting bus stop conversation. Right. Thank you for this. <laughs> I appreciate knowing that, that I am a wizard, that kink does exist, <laughs> that I can go off to Hogwarts and learn how to do this consensually and live a happy, fulfilled life doing so. So, you know, a lot Them of the, muggles. the biggest problem with the normative is that a lot of it, people don't talk about the bad mm-hmm. and they don't educate on the bad and it's changing slowly yeah. Um, yeah. as people, communication is in the world now. The internet makes life a lot more communicative and scary sure. because there's so sure. much information that can get lost but um, but I think that's one of the biggest things in normative culture mm-hmm. you know um, the good gets shared and the bad doesn't oh interesting so in normative culture the good gets shared and the bad doesn't I hadn't thought of that so when you say the bad are you talking about what normative culture c- perceives as bad so things like kink things like non-monogamy Maybe even the uncomfortableness of it. Sure. I mean, if I had a, if I had off the top of my head a good story about me being really uncomfortable, sure, I would instantly think, "What's a funny way to tell this story?" Right, because you have to just you have to dispel the the stress, the strain. Right, and sit there and be like, "Man, let's go have some beers. I'll tell you about this time I sure really screwed this thing up and was super embarrassed, and it'll be kind of a cute story." But m- sitting there and being like, "Oh, you know, I had this really bad time," and mm-hmm. it instantly just feels weird to talk about you know and weird in no sense that it's just it's difficult interesting okay um that's so what i find fascinating about that is i wonder how much of that is gender scripting from being a man in not showing weakness and not showing um anxiety or discomfort around a situation or whether you're talking legitimately about not that you're not ever not that you're not always talking authentically and legitimately, I just mean... No, for sure. Right, whether or not it's about failure and talking about failure as something that affects all of us, or whether this is more of a gender thing. Because obviously, like, anything that you talk about is going to be through your lens. Exactly. That's a good question, and mm-hmm. I'm not the person to answer it, because... Is it okay if I show your race as well? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so, just so everyone knows, X is white. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, it's... Uh, Oh, there it goes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, and that's only significant because it speaks to your lens. And I think exactly. most people who are white listening to this may even be asking themselves, not all of them, of course, but some of them may be asking themselves, why would you need to share his race? Like, what difference does that make? And that is like a huge privilege of being the dominant race in society. And, you know, and it does it does make a difference. It tells a lot of people where I came from. I came yeah. from a small town. Totally. We didn't have a lot of... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? 
Um, I don't want to say money because I feel like that's presumptuous. Uh, no, not money, but not in a lot of ways to really experience other culture oh, because okay, it just didn't you. exist. There wasn't the exchange because um, you were in a small town. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of other cultures there to really show me a lot of uh, a different, different ways, ways of doing, of things, doing or things. things. Yeah, um, which I absolutely love being in the big city, especially mm -hmm. um, because I've gained a lot more of that, and it's so helpful. Um, but you don't get it, then how do you know? My dad told me an interesting story once. Okay. And I really didn't understand this as a kid. When he was growing up, I mean, he's this small redneck child in the fullest extent that you can imagine. And the, and I might and I need to add that your parents are the nicest rednecks I've ever met. If you're going to describe them as rednecks, we have to qualify that as they're actually amazing people, incredibly hospitable and friendly to people of color. And they're they're very open and you know what I mean? Yeah. They're just they're just I think yeah. you described them as liberal rednecks when I first met them, and I remember being, like, <laughs> uncertain how it was going to go, and then we just had, like, the most amazing dinner that was exactly what you'd expect. It was, like, barbecued ribs and corn, and right. that was, like, dinner, but I was like, cool, this is wholesome, it's different, it's... It's like, here's this world I've, I've never, like, lived or experienced, but, like, I've heard so much. It's like, what is it Russell Peters says? Oh, cool, a white kid, I've heard so much about you! <laughs> That, that was pretty much exactly the way I felt when you were, like, liberal rednecks. I was like, I've heard so much about you. <laughs> well, you know, so he's telling me when he was really young, he moved to the States, and yes. he met his first person of color, and okay. they instantly hated him wow. because of his race. So right. my dad's first experience with another race was hatred and racism, even though he'd never met anybody or seen anybody or even heard of anything. Sure. And I... It is what it is, you know what I mean? There's no right or wrong to this story at all, but it was just kind of a fascinating way to view... Right, that there is a lot of negativity. A world where sometimes it's not, you know what I mean? How do you get? How do you learn about these things until you learn about it? Right. Um, and are you a part of the problem until you do? Well, very mm -hmm. much so, but that doesn't mean... You know what I mean? That's yes. part of how we change is... Absolutely, and that there is a lot of learning to be done there, and there's a lot of benefit from that cultural exchange. And fortunately, there's a lot less of that animosity, I, I think. Maybe it's because I walk through the world as a person of color, so I don't see that animosity. Well, I mean, he grew up in the 50s, 60s, like really right. early, you know Much what I mean? Much more tense like, times. Um, but by telling me this, when I was younger, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have known either of those. Like, that gave me such a cool perspective on how people are. Yeah, And how totally. fear and anger from other people that are like other sure. people can cause such problems. Yeah, fear and anger definitely cause problems. I think it's important to make a distinction between... Um, I, I recently was reading a review in a book called Conflict is Not Abuse. Uh, and it, it's by, I think her name is Shulman. Anyways, the point is that when you have conflict and there's an asymmetrical power dynamic, it can be abuse. But if that conflict goes both ways, more and more the person with more power describes it as abuse towards them. And whenever oh, you're looking... Fascinating. Right. So you can think of this, um, the example Shulman uses is Israel-Gaza. So if Israel invades, there's an asymmetrical power dynamic. I mean, look at the volume of funds. And again, I'm not saying this to be anti-Semitic. I'm just saying this is Shulman's argument as an Israeli person herself. However, if Gaza fires off some missiles that are a poor excuse for missiles as, as a moral fuck you, they then say, oh my God, we're being bombed. This is like a really serious threat to us in a way that it might not actually objectively represent as serious a threat. Of course, that's easy for me to say, not living in a place where 
rockets and such rain down and potentially kill people I love or care for or work with or just countrymen. Oh, for sure, right? But So it's easy to have this perspective. But the point I'm making is um, even if you look at racism is what I was originally going to move towards. There's a colloquial use of the word racism that just means like discrimination based on race. So you look at someone and you make decisions based on the skin color of that person or the look or features of that person based on who you think they're descended from, which may or may not be the case at all because there's a whole assumed race component and there's a whole um, race passing component. Like even as a person of color, occasionally I pass as white. People just don't know I'm a person of color because I'm mixed race. And they'll talk to me about race as if I were a white person. And sometimes I'll be like, holy shit, what did you just say about Indians? Like, dude, I'm, I'm Indian. <laughs> Whoa, dude. Yeah, like, like, holy shit, like, take a few steps back. And, and they're often like, oh, I didn't know that. And it's, it's really interesting. It doesn't happen often. I'm shaking my head at the, no, at I know. the story. It's, you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, man. Right, which is different than when you voice to your you know, friends, white or not, that you're totally okay with jabs about your race. And then you know, we have our experience at camp where you're talking about Indian tanning. And I'm like, yep, it's Indian tanning. Um, which, which, I will, which I will admit, in, in hindsight, might not be the, the most appropriate thing. Um, I'm sure there are probably... Um, and this, this is another interesting thing about being a mixed-race person is I'll talk with people who are, who are Indian who only consider me half Indian. Oh, yeah, right. And it's interesting yeah. how we're not double breeds, we're half breeds. There's all this huge, staunch negativity that... That's such a cool... That sentence just hits it, doesn't it? It's, yeah, it's like, I'm not, I'm not an Indian man who's also a British man. I am half British and I am half Indian. And there's this stress on, on, on the incompleteness of my identity and it oh. fucking sucks and I fucking hate it. But it, it is what it is. So um, I, I end up being not white to my white friends and not a person of color almost to my person of color friends. Wow. And it's this weird third state of, of living in. And the cultural environment at home is like totally different because on the one hand, I have this this white dad who is what you would expect a British father to be, um, and I and I have an Indian mom who is what you would expect an Indian mom to be. There's nothing. I mean, I I don't want to be that reductive, and I apologize for oversimplifying like that and in, in sort of reducing them to caricatures, which they're not. They're full people with all of their own lovely traumas and <laughs> baggage that they have worked through or not worked through, as we all are. They're complete, whole, unique, imperfect human beings. However, there is there is some truth to the styles of discipline and attitudes towards sexuality and attitudes towards behavior that their cultures brought. Like their cultures definitely informed their parenting styles. And then you have me. I don't get the experience of being an Indian to Indian parents or a British person to British parents. I get this weird third experience of being a mixed race child to two different cultures of parenting as they're clashing over things that I'm doing. Oh, no. And fortunately, I got that less badly than my brother and sister, but nonetheless, it was a unique experience. But what were we talking about? We were talking about something good before I got uh, off the beaten path. Right, we were talking about um, race relations. We were talking about racism, right. So when we talk about racism as, like, here's the distinction between... Um, so what I want to talk about is the distinction between colloquial racism, which is based on this person's skin color, I'm making this judgment, and like systemic or the academic use of the word racism. Something a lot of people of color take issue with is when white people talk about racism that happens to them 
And while it might be racism in a colloquial sense, absolutely, it's not necessarily, like, institutionalized or systemic. Oh, I get it. It's the difference between being, like, white or black in the U.S., for example. That's a good stereotypical example that everyone will probably understand who's listening. If you are white, you might pass a police car and you're not worried, is that person literally going to shoot me? Like, am I going to possibly die today because this police officer is walking up to me to give me a ticket or just wants to have a chat? Yeah. That's you know, just not part of your experience as a white person, typically. It's something I would never be afraid It would just never enter your mind. Of, you right. know what I mean? Yeah. And then you see the videos on YouTube from people who are actually black and actually experience, you know, going into Starbucks while black as a crime, who experience um, shopping while black as a crime. Ultimately, there's this just insane perception of harm and danger where when you listen to the people speak about their experiences, you start seeing like, there, it really just doesn't exist. It's really just racism. So when people talk about racism like that, they're not talking about this person was angry at me. They're not talking about conflict. They're talking about this person has the power to fuck my life up or murder me without trial. Yeah. That's what they're talking about. And it's a whole other level. And it's really easy to not be super focused on that side of racism because you just don't necessarily see it as much as a white person. Uh, uh. You're not afraid of it. You're not. Mm-hmm. It's it's not something that's causing this huge set of grief through your entire community because you it's it it's out of sight, out of mind. Totally. If you hear about a tragedy that happens somewhere and you're not involved with it, you can feel sad about it. You can try to help with it, but if you don't experience it, mm-hmm. it's not on your mind. Yeah. You know, if you hear about somebody losing a family member, you can yeah. do what you can to be there for them, but you're not there. Yeah. It's not your family member. You yeah. might not really have to go through that grief. That's a great way to express that. Um, so, you know, I, I can't comprehend those fears and emotions. Yeah. And that makes it hard. Totally. Because I like to think I'm pretty... Understanding. Understanding. Like, I really... Compassionate is a great word. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like to... I wish that more people had a lot more compassion in them to sit there and go, well, I don't understand. Like... Sure. I, I... I don't understand. Powerful words. Oh, you know, and... And they're they're growth words. They're the kind of words where you get to celebrate that you've identified an opportunity to grow. You can say, like, I don't understand this. Cool. I might learn something today. Yeah. And that's that's just it. So as a a person who just really didn't have any of these experiences, I... I don't understand. And that's great. Like, it's, <laughs> it's great that you can come to a place of not being defensive, of not being angry, of not being confrontational, and just being like, oh, that's new information. That's neat. Yeah, you know, okay, this is a good start. I don't know what I'm... I don't know... Sure. I don't know the situation. Yeah. Let me learn. And so when I, this is the big thing. When a lot of people have opinions that they're constantly tossing out at me, I'm like, right. well, hold on there. You don't understand either. Right. You know, and I know you don't understand because you just said, you know, whatever your yeah, opinion was. Yeah, you just said was. the super ignorant thing that you just said. And I have, a, I have a suspicion that maybe you don't have all angles on this. Right. And I know I don't understand. And I know I haven't done my research. So I'm not going to get into this argument because I don't have any sure. knowledge to help either of us. And that's something that sometimes I see as a mixed race person. I'll see two people like arguing about racism. And I look and they're both white dudes. And they're having this like impassioned discussion about racism. And neither of them is really right from my perspective <laughs> as, like, a third party who, like, is mixed race. And I'm just like, 
yeah, I'm not going to get in that conversation. And, and a lot of people don't get into debates to learn. They get into debates to prove themselves right. Oh, my God, the worst. So that's that's the big thing right there, especially mm-hmm. when anyone talks politically. I'm like, sure. you, are you open to changing your mind or are you just trying to change mind? Right. Because if you're not open to changing your mind, we Why don't need we a conversation. Yeah. yeah. I can just Google your perspective. Yeah. And, and then I can choose to disengage when I want one's comfortable with me. So. Exactly. I drive people nuts politically. <laughs> well, it's interesting, too, because sometimes, sometimes not just race, but identity gets talked about as politics. People will say, I hate those identity politics. And, and it's such an interesting frame of mind for someone to use that language because I don't like thinking that I'm political as a human being. And there are some truths that I feel are my truths to speak just for me. I can't say they're necessarily true for anyone else, but but I can say things about my experience of gender as not being a binary thing, and if people insist that gender is always binary, it's like, well, you can speak your truth. You can say that in your experience, you only perceive gender as binary, and I can only say in my experience, I perceive gender as more than just binary, at the very least, as two spectrums of, of masculinity and, and femininity, and this is just talking about gender, not talking about sex, where you'd see spectrums of how male a person's genitals are or how female they are. And a lot of people at this point tune out of the conversation and go, what the fuck are you on about, Victor? Sex is is either XX or XY. And then you kind of have to try and inform them, well, you know, there are cases where a person is, say, XY is quote-unquote genetically male, but they have androgen insensitivity, and then they end up having a female body and being female-bodied. And and the biggest thing is there's a moment where anybody that kind of hears that and goes, no, 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 no. Right. At what point are they eventually going to sit there and go, well, maybe I just don't understand. Right. Right. Exactly. Goes back to that. Are they trying to assume they understand something and just making, so they don't have to worry about it? And it's, the world needs to learn. It's easy to say, you're right. I don't know anything about this. Yeah, and I don't to need to know anything about this. You know what I mean? Right. It's not my argument. It's not my stance. Right. If I am just sit there and I say, oh, these people are all really upset. I don't know anything about what they're upset about. I don't need an opinion on it. Right. I don't have to be for or against or anything. I just be like, I don't know. Right. And if they come to you and say, hey, this would be way better for our conditions. Like, this would improve our quality of life. You can be like, sure, I don't really care one way or the other. It's not going to affect mine. Yeah. Why would I have a say in you getting a higher quality of life if it's really not going to meaningfully impact my life? Yeah, it doesn't change anything I'm doing. It's not like it's going to hurt anybody else to help you. Like, And just to clarify, when you were saying I don't need an opinion, you weren't saying I don't want to hear those opinions from people who are marginalized. You were saying I don't need to hold an opinion of someone who just doesn't really know exactly as somebody like if you if you say to me anything about non-binary genders and i strictly just don't know anything on the topic sure i don't need to form a place of where i stand on people as a as a non-binary gender there's no reason for me to do so right and it's totally okay for you to sit on the sidelines as it were and just say cool it seems like there are people that know more about this than me and if they have opinions i'm interested in hearing about them but like ultimately i'm not going to have a strong stance one way or the other because i just don't have the life experience to back that stance up with anything and i think this is where a lot of people really go Mm -hmm. all over the map because somebody says what's your opinion on and i think that people forget that they can say i don't have one and And i'm not going to form one based on what you tell me in this conversation and it's not because i don't care about those people it's because i don't feel like i have the authority to have an opinion about this topic on which I don't really command any knowledge. Exactly. Exactly. And I find I go through a lot of life and society not knowing anything people are talking about. And the more I learn what people are talking about, I'm like, I don't think a lot of people know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I think that might just be a life experience thing. I find the more that I know on a subject, even if I'm academically studying it, the less I feel like I know anything about it. And that that's how I feel you start to really know a subject is when you know how much you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that's a big change in a, oh, suddenly I know I don't know anything. Yeah, absolutely. I've learned. <laughs> I've learned. I've come a long way from when I knew a lot. Yeah. <laughs> cool. We, we have really been all over the map. We talked a little bit about... Um, Sex organs, I mentioned um, um, androgen insensitivity. There's also Klinefelters where people are XXY and they do have genitals that really fall on a spectrum between how male those genitals are and how female those genitals are. See, That's super cool. You just things you don't know, right? There's, there's a video even, I think BuzzFeed put out a video called Intersexy um, and you can Google it and it's, it's wicked. It's just a whole bunch of intersex people talking about being intersex and it's, it's neat to get that perspective and be like, oh, so this is, a, this is a thing. Like, these people exist. They have real feelings, real relationships, and they're highly discriminated against in society. Like, when we get corrective surgery on babies who have their quote-unquote sex organs corrected to be either male or female, that's cosmetic modification, essentially, of an infant that may be done with the best intention. That doesn't really matter. Ultimately, it's heavily discriminatory towards those intersex children to essentially resex them so that they're what we think they should be instead of just living as they are. Yeah, and that's like it's not like a vaccination. Wow. Like this you know isn't something mean. that should be legislated in the sense that it's that there's even any argument it's beneficial to the group population. It's not. It's a strictly individual choice in my opinion. And it's just because people will be comfortable understanding something simple rather than complicated. Right. It's way simpler to, to look at the world in these binaries of right and wrong, normal or abnormal, um, correct or incorrect, and to think of everything through this binary lens. It's, it's the kind of thinking that I think is, is truly expedient at getting things done for the majority and truly dangerous for everybody, including the majority. I think it's the way that you get to voting systems that are that are a or b are a huge problem in my opinion i I really am a bigger fan of more decentralized power which is one of the founding principles of a lot of western democracies is let's decentralize power and then there's this like and again i'm really talking out of my ass because i'm not very learned on the subject but then there's this counter push of yes and how can we concentrate that power again using say first past the post um or just all, all of those various ways that we use to both decentralize and then re-centralize power, I find very interesting. And power dynamics come into communication and relationships and communities, which was why I was touching on them at all. And you know what really bugs me about the whole situation is people just have all these thoughts and ideas on all these things that they don't have any business having any thoughts or ideas or opinions on. And then when it happens to them, they're shocked that there's no help. Right. And they're like, oh, I suddenly need all this stuff and I don't understand what's going on and the world's just doesn't care because my opinion two weeks ago threw right. me into this situation. Now nobody else, everyone else has that opinion. I blatantly yelled at the world right? and now I need them. You're talking about old guy screaming at the moon kind of politics where a person's like, I have these staunch political views and then the second those views don't serve them, they go and I have changed my staunch political views. Right. I, think, I think Bender says it best with, this is the worst kind of discrimination, the kind against me. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it, right? Suddenly the world changes. Yeah. <laughs> that's powerful, though, that moment of, of change. Yes. Oh, change is important. Very important. And on that note, I would like to end this session, and I'd like to invite you on for another session. Let's do it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you for having me. It was, a very, it was an absolute pleasure. Awesome. And that was X, a director and scriptwriter in Vancouver.
The background music was Four Way by William Ross Chernoff's Nomads, published through Creative Commons. I hope you've enjoyed Intimate Interactions. Thank you to all of my patrons for their generous support in making this possible. If you'd like to support more content like this and get early access to upcoming shows as well as other goodies, go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon and pledge. Thanks for your time, and talk to you soon.